This is the Tan Report. I'm your host, Tan Trung. And most likely, you probably had to go through some commercials before getting to this point. And if you're like me, you fast-forwarded when you heard them. I've made a habit of that. A part of my daily workout routine is listening to a podcast and also doing what I can to speed through the commercials in them. Increasingly, I've found myself trying to block out ads, commercials, and messages I just don't care for. I'm a big YouTube guy, but the ridiculous number of commercials that have popped up when I'm in the middle of a video convinced me to subscribe to YouTube Premium, which allows me to go ad-free. I kind of hate that I got to that point. It's a strange situation. Instead of being exposed to ads and commercials trying to make me pay attention to something or spend my money on a product, I'm actually spending money to avoid them. Of course, that's a win for YouTube, because I'm now paying them 14 bucks a month for that luxury. That's on YouTube, though. The real world is a different matter. We don't get to just skip the messaging or commercials bombarding us. I was getting gas a few days ago, and the pump had a screen playing a commercial. I guess we can call it gas station content. Fuel Squad by Maria Menounos, tip of the day. Looking for a supplement to improve your overall health? Holistic nutritionist Alyssa Goodman assures us that... And there are seasons for certain types of messaging. Louisiana politics is famous for big characters with big personalities who talk a big game. We're in the thick of it politically down here in Louisiana. We got elections coming up in a few weeks. The big one is the governor's race. But we also have a ton of local races too. So communities are draped in posters, billboards, and yard signs of candidates running for office. On television and online, political ads are in a constant loop, telling us how homegrown and down-to-earth these candidates are. Millions of dollars are spent to get those messages across, but if I can help it, I'm tuning them out. With all of that as a backdrop, I wondered what it's like for the people, companies, and organizations trying to deliver messages to us. What are they seeing on their end? For those questions, I visited two public relations firms in New Orleans. One is the Brilsky Company. Sharon Brilsky. I own the Brilsky Company. The other is the Earhart Group. I'm Mark Earhart, president and owner of the Earhart Group. We are the largest public relations firm between Atlanta and Houston, focusing on the Gulf South. Let's start first with Mark and the Earhart Group. As you heard Mark mention, they focus on the Gulf South prominently displayed on their homepage is this, quote, knowing local and being local are more important than ever. The firm describes the Gulf South as a misunderstood land of opportunity. Here's Mark. So we have 18 people here. We work with clients throughout the Gulf South. So our our area is Louisiana, Mississippi, coastal Alabama, and the Florida Panhandle. And that's our area. So we don't claim to be able to know how to do things in Iowa. We can't tell you how people think there. We have an idea, but we can't. That we're not. We're not the people who work in Idaho or California. If, when somebody says, "Well, I need to know more about what happens in the Gulf South, in Louisiana and Mississippi, um, who can help solve our problem?" We want them to call us. What's the challenge for you guys now, knowing that there is much more control from the user end that could just bypass what you're trying to get in front of them? So, so there's a good part in terms of how technology has evolved, and then there's the challenging part. I'll start with the good news first. The good news in what we do is that there is so much information out there, but there's also, in a simple sense, the computing power to where whatever audience we're looking for, it can be defined. Whether that audience is 90 million people or 900, you can figure out ways to define who those audiences are built around 
the viewing habits, the reading habits, the social media habits, all those types of things. Wherever we go online and different things, we're leaving little bits of information that is available to be gathered legally. Um, but it the goes cookies. into yeah, but it, and it goes into defining um, different types of, of user profiles that can then define an audience that we can then go try to talk to. Um, some of it is really it hasn't changed. It's old school. I mean, you just understand where where people get their information from down here. Like that's so there's still value in going town to town. And knowing who's on the boards of which chambers and which group meets when and um, what kinds of things are they talking about and, and those types of things and offering someone who has an issue to talk about to a group of people, 50 people that are gathered somewhere and going out and telling them about what you think. Um, that still can work and it does work in Louisiana, Mississippi and this Gulf South area. So that's a good news for us. We just become had to become more sophisticated in in figuring out where the people are and then going to them the tough part is really isn't as much finding the audience the tough part is breaking through what is becoming almost like we call it news bubbles where people will put themselves in their own bubble of where they get their information from and it usually feeds into stuff that they already believe and then it just keeps getting reinforced and reinforced and reinforced well, within those individual news bubbles, it's harder to break in a different point of view for people to consider. Because when you're hearing the same things over and over and over again, you, you tend to have your, your thoughts galvanized one way or another. Sure. How do you get to the people? Like, I'm, Not to give away trade secrets here, sure, but no. I mean, how, how do you figure out and how do you get the information where where to reach your audience and where, where they are? It can be as sophisticated as, as data modeling. And things that and data analysis, um, we have a partner that we do that with when um, when it's needed, where we're looking at okay, we have terms of economic, household income type breakdowns, geography in many cases. Um, we don't really look a lot at political parties and things um, because that's not necessarily the kind of work that we do. We don't do political campaign work, but there's ways to model and and utilize the data that's publicly available to narrow in on what. You know, we can say if there's somebody between the age of 35 and 40, they're married, they have three children, and live in the suburbs. And this is something that, you know, our friends in, in the advertising business do too. And then it will come back and tell us, well, they spend this much time in general, this profile will spend more, more time than average on Facebook versus TikTok. They tend to watch this type of programming, and they tend to subscribe to these types of streaming services used to be these are the types of magazines they read well it doesn't really happen the same way anymore um, but by getting those types of uh, profiles we can then figure out the best tools to use to be able to communicate our message before the internet and social media the best tools to communicate messages basically were television radio and print i don't want to say it was necessarily easier to convey something to the masses but it seemed more straightforward it's changed significantly, and it, it really, the way to look at it, when we think about something 30 years ago or, or even older than that, you know, there, were, there was a lot more definition to how people got their information. It was, it was, it was easier. It was put in front of us more than, than us choosing to watch or to read. It was always there, but it was a limited amount of outlets. 
And so when you look at things that are some of the most famous ad campaigns in the history of New Orleans, the modern history of New Orleans, you know, those were campaigns that were tied to specific media outlets, um, products and things that would be sponsoring the news or just general ads that just ran over and over again, McKenzie's, K&B, um, all those types of things. But they were running on really originally three network stations and maybe a couple of independents. And then that grew with Fox coming around to where you had four networks and some independents. Even with a hundred something cable channels, the primary means we were gathering our information was through television. And we were still watching broadcast television. We were still watching local news in that in a in a really big way. We were still doing things around national news that were airing on local stations. So it, you could really pinpoint people by their viewing habits. And so that's how it was done. For us in the public relations business, what has evolved over time, because we don't focus on what people would consider paid advertising in a traditional sense. We focus more on how are people consuming information now. Data dominates this digital age. So if a business, or in this case, a PR firm like the Earhart Group, wants to effectively communicate something, it has to know its target audience inside out. The Earhart Group has invested money in that. Mark gave me a printed version of what they call their Gulf South Index. Every year, they work with a local data analytics firm to survey people along the Gulf South to find out things like how much time they spend on social media, what issues are most important to them, and where they get their information. People trust local news, and they pay attention. And so people are going to look to other people they trust for, for guidance and for, for information. So people will go on social quite a bit. I mean, it's there. The user habits, we spend more time in the Gulf South on Facebook than people do nationally. TikTok has risen exponentially in recent years in terms of people using it and who uses it and why. Same with YouTube. And we, we have to know where those debates are taking place. We have to track what people are, we can pay attention to what people are, are saying on various platforms. I mean, that the debate has become a hell of a lot more public <laughs> than maybe it was before because of where information is and how it's shared. Mark says information, for the most part, has stayed the same. How it's delivered certainly has not. When people tell me a lot of times, they'll say, well, I don't watch the news anymore. I say, well, where do you, where do you get information then? Well, I go to Twitter, now X. I say, well, what do you follow on Twitter? Oh, I follow... Uh, WWL or NOLA.com or the, you know, some people follow the Associated Press. Well, that's the same news we've always gotten. You're just getting it through your phone and you don't realize you're, you're watching the news, right. you know? I find younger voters that 18 to 35 demo is most influenced by media that comes directly to their phone. And that is harder to reach that person. Sharon Brilsky's career in political messaging in New Orleans started with her position as public information director and chief speechwriter for the city's first black mayor, Dutch Morial. He was mayor of New Orleans from 1978 to 1986. When I started out at City Hall, I was one of several uh, writers who worked on manual typewriters. We had our desk, we had our manual typewriter, and we had our phones. And um, We're talking landline phones. At right, landlines, right. And, you know, we didn't have fax lines. We didn't have cable television. In fact, when cable television came in, I think one of the first places they wired was City Hall. And so we were all enthralled with cable television. So it was really a different time. Eventually we got beepers 
you know, the cool thing to have was a beeper. Um, eventually, as yeah, you were either a drug dealer or a yeah, government yeah, worker yeah, yeah. with a beeper. <laughs> with a beeper. And then eventually, there were people actually, as I was leaving city government in the 80s, the late 80s, who were getting s cell phones. And these were like, weighed like maybe 10 pounds, right? They were huge. You know, there were rich people who could afford cell phones at the time. We did start to have faxes by then, but it was still a era when face-to-face -face communications was the rule. And in that time, you know, communicating with the public it was very dependent upon the public access to news media. There were things like free public service announcements that television stations felt they had to produce, even if they ran them in off times, it was still possible to get um, elected officials, if they were already in office, to make announcements with ads, literally ads, 30-second ads. So it was, a, it was a very different time. And of course, the, the amount of news operations, it was a very competitive news operation at that time in New Orleans. We had, yes, four or five TV stations. We had several radio talk. Uh, stations, AM stations. Um, we had the UPI and AP with bureaus. We had several newspapers and weekly newspapers in addition to neighborhood newsletters and newspapers. Uh, West Bank Guides, for example, these small operations. So it was a very competitive information market, but it was still largely dependent on face-to-face -face relationships and long-term relationships between um, public relations professionals as well as reporters. I mean, those What were, does that mean, though? But when you talk about face-to-face, -face, does it mean going out to lunch or meeting with a reporter or meeting with, say, a state senator or a city council person to know the lay of the land on a particular issue? What are you talking about when you talk about face-to-face? -face? It, it, it was um, a lot more of uh, direct meetings to establish relationships, to explain information, even to give documents. After her time in City Hall, Brilsky established her own public relations firm, the Brilsky Company. It specialized in political communications and messaging, with an emphasis on getting minorities and women elected. Among the many candidates she worked with was Mary Landrieu, who eventually became a U.S. Senator representing Louisiana. During that time, I mean, we're talking about traditional media. Right. You know, we're talking radio, newspaper, and television, which at that point I'd imagine, I remember television was really dominant at that point. It right. emerged as the, the leading right. platform to get yes. information out. As someone who was working in communications in the political arena, whether it was with Dutch Morial and then with the Landry campaigns, like what was your approach? How did you get your messaging out? Um, actually, several ways. We absolutely relied on earned media. Um, we created... Meaning what when you say earned um, media? Getting on news shows, getting stories placed, being very aggressive at bringing controversial issues forward with spokespersons, not just saying, oh, you know, Mr. Reporter, you got to do a story on domestic violence in Louisiana, but actually bringing forth victims or or are women leaders who are willing to say this is a problem. So we created news stories. We actually absolutely called every radio, TV, talk show. We provided guests. Um, we were very aggressive and, and assertive about doing that. And I will say this, 
the other thing we did a lot of was creating our own newsletters. By this time, faxes had become something. A thing. <laughs> right. And so one of the things that I did um, in my own business was I... I pitied the people who would send me their fax numbers because once they got on my fax list, they were on it forever. <laughs> Just like eventually that transitioned to emails. So we started, you know, doing our own information sheets as well. At the time, and this doesn't exist to the extent that it used to, but you could also hire grassroots firms. A lot of times these were workshops that hired people who couldn't really get steady jobs for some reason, um, but they would take low-wage jobs to do leafleting in neighborhoods. We did a lot of leafleting. We created our own newsletters. Um, so we took advantage of any free opportunity to get in front of the audience as we wanted to get in front of. Brilski says the competitive New Orleans news market, which she was once familiar with, has lost a lot of its local characteristics. That could apply to many other media markets in America. Brilski believes that diminished local influence or control in media is providing fertile ground for social and digital media to assert themselves. She says it's a big factor in the ongoing polarization of politics. Media is so much more controlled by corporate conglomerates. It's, it is struggling itself to compete within the digital age, so costs are primary. It's no longer about stories. It's like, what gets us viewers? How do we maintain ad revenue? Yada, yada. And so it's, it's very hard, to, I find, to get out messaging in this environment. It's different. It's definitely different. I think people are figuring out ways, um, but I also think people are abusing social media on my end of it and creating this divide we see in America now between the extremes and the middles being forgotten. I will say this, in politics, the quote-unquote dark money when, you know, that now comes in and floods local elections is really disturbing to me. I mean, people don't know who's behind some of the candidates and issues that are getting pushed, and that disturbs me a lot. What I find interesting about the dark money issue is that a lot of it is going to communications. When you're talking about, you know, the funding for candidates and where this money's coming from, the dark money, it often goes into campaigns for commercials, for ads, whether it's on social, on TV, whatever it is. Right. That's interesting to me because a chunk of this, a huge chunk of this money is going to the influence campaign. Yeah, yes, absolutely. And, you know, I will say that there's still, you know, when, when you look into the demographics of who's using social media and who's influenced, you know, it is true. The older, um, over 50 crowd still gets their information from a variety of news sources, newspapers, local TV news, national uh, TV news. You know, they still like to get the printed paper. I still do. I don't want an online digital access. I want, a, I want the physical thing. Then there's a, another group, you know, under 40, that is still looking at local news, doesn't read a physical paper, goes to whatever they want to subscribe to, um, and, is, and, and does go to, you know, sites like Reddit or go to Facebook and Snapchat and all those little uh, type of things. To get information, you know, before it used to be that campaigns really were a conglomeration of kind of idealistic, sometimes friends or, you know, who maybe were being paid, but weren't being paid some kind of scale. That seems to have disappeared from candidates. More and more candidates have to rely on on these 
not always. I mean, there can still be successful grassroots campaign, but you know, you see more and more just this this reliance on um, paid forms of advertising, and that now has transitioned uh, into hiring social media firms. And I will say this: one of the things I'm noticing social media firms, at least on the political end, are doing is they're sending out emails that include videos and producing videos to most people ends up being expensive. They're not things like, oh, let's go out on the street and let's just talk about the fact that, you know, we need to get streets paved in New Orleans or something and someone's doing it on their phone. They become these productions. Well, that's money. And they're, and they're charging exorbitant fees to candidates, even grassroots candidates, and launching these extensive um, social media campaigns. And I have to be honest with you, a lot of voters aren't going to sit there and watch a long video. From Brilsky's point of view, social media, as it relates to politics and campaigning, has become very toxic and combative, which has reshaped our understanding of what rational and civil debates are. Now, with social media, there's the shaming. And it's, it's someone could express an idea and be very sincere in that idea. Their idea isn't bad. It's their, their idea. It's not misinformation. It's literally a opinion. And that opinion can be shamed to where the person maybe is called a racist, or maybe they're called a sexist, or maybe they're called a, you know, some name that shuts down people even listening. It no longer becomes about the exchange of ideas. It becomes this name calling like sticks and stones when you're in the play yard as a kid. In her line of work, the political distrust and disdain many Americans have of the so-called other side makes it much more difficult for political issues or candidates to break through. I find it harder and harder to reach younger voters in particular. They don't want to be contacted at home. They don't want to be contacted on their phone. And so you have to find sneaky ways to get that message to those voters. And um, they are very issue-oriented on a few issues that they figure feel are important, but um, it's uh, much harder to, to really reach them, on, uh, especially with candidates and information about candidates. On the flip side, Brilsky sees older voters as being more receptive to political messages, especially the ones delivered in more traditional forms of media. They are more likely to go to the polls regardless of how well they know the issues. They are more motivated by what they hear from the candidate. They're more likely to tune into uh, debates on television or actually go meet a candidate or go to a local meet and greet. Whether it's Sharon Brilsky trying to get a candidate elected or Mark Earhart and the Earhart Group promoting Louisiana's energy sector, they're both looking at a decentralized media landscape, which means their approach to working within it has to be flexible. What I do now is a mix of different things. I have to be aggressive with certain decision makers about letter campaigns, email campaigns, text campaigns. You've got to find people who have relationships with certain key influential people to be able to reach them on their real cell phones or real email accounts. Because let's face it, so many emails and texts in government or in public service go to underlings. They don't go to the person you really want to talk to. And it is harder and harder to get people to write letters as well as to mail letters. A lot of people don't even want to get physical mail. Um, But there is still an importance to, I think, that kind of messaging something that still works in south louisiana is direct mail it, you know some people go oh, snail man, mail you, like yeah. going to my mailbox yeah and stuff. direct mail people pay attention 
Um, part of it is because people don't mail that much stuff anymore. Now, I'm not an advocate for going back to faxing, but direct mail, it works. Mark Earhart says, at the end of the day, the goal of his PR firm remains the same as it did when they opened in 1996. Essentially, it's multifaceted to get that point B, right? We're going from point A to point B. It takes a lot of different roads to get there. But ultimately, point B is really very clear, and, and, and depending on the, the project or the client we're working with. And we try to get clear on what point B is, the end of that journey, at the, before we get started in the beginning. So then we can define success in the best possible way for that client. Put it in another way, the outcome or the objective of any messaging campaign will most likely drive the strategy to achieve it. To illustrate that, Earhart told me about their previous work with promoting professional wrestling at the Superdome. We've worked two different WrestleManias in the Superdome. And the challenge for us was the client came to us and said, we need to sell this many tickets. This is what we're doing to pay for advertising and where we're doing it. But we need this many people to come to the convention center or the Superdome or whatever. How do we get the word out about it beyond the paid advertising that we're doing? And we went up and down I-10 with different superstars and other people doing uh, interviews on morning television, radio interviews, other types of things to where people are seeing things naturally through where they get their own information and they're learning about that particular event. It was one of the highest grossing events ever to come to the Superdome and was very successful at the convention center. The Earhart Group and the Brilsky Company differ in the size of their respective firms and the type of public relations they're involved in. They also differ in their outlook for the future. For Earhart, there's optimism and opportunity. In what we do, I think we're just getting started. You know, we're, we're the, again, the largest public relations firm in the Gulf South. And I, I use the Gulf South purposefully because the future of our profession is built around knowing local and being local. We could not do what we do to the extent that we do it if we tried to do it everywhere. And so what we've decided is we, we work to understand this part of the country as best as we can because it's part of who we are. We've chosen to stay and build here, and we want to know how people make decisions here. And so when someone thinks about a public relations challenge in this part of the, this part of the country, we want them to call us. But the key part of that is in this part of the country. And I think that sets us up for a lot of opportunities in the future because there are opportunities in this part of the country. Sometimes we don't see it. We don't see it as quickly as we should, but there are opportunities here. And there are companies and institutions and organizations that are going to that are going to have challenges that are going to need somebody to help them. And we think we're well positioned to do that for us to do that effectively because the world is continually changing. That's the only the status quo is that there is no status quo. Things are always changing. We try to be at the forefront of how people communicate and how that is changing. Sharon Brilsky feels her time in political PR is winding down. I have decided to semi-retire. That's partly because of my age, because I am going to be 65 this year. Also, just some of the changes in my own personal life. But the main thing was, as I have sat at the table in a variety of campaigns, I have watched a lot of the people that I've gotten old, that I've grew up with, getting older, but also becoming ineffective at how they're reaching voters. In her decades of work. Brilsky has prided herself in presenting messages and candidates honestly. With the rise of social media and the polarization that has come with it, she says she's had to be honest with herself. 
I don't feel I'm very good at social media. I don't like it. I don't even like it. I don't even want to use it. <laughs> so it's like, how do you bridge that gap in your mind? And I'm not sure how to do that. I felt it's not just the times were changing, but maybe I wasn't changing as well or didn't, I wasn't quite being effective in how I was interacting in that environment. And so, yeah, I, I feel a little bit like a dinosaur at this point. And, um, but I also don't like what I'm seeing in politics. It is divisive. I also feel like the candidates that it generates to come forward are not necessarily quality candidates. And so I haven't been able to find people I really believe in. That's always been a big part of it for me, you know? I've always been a crusader. I'm not really a good business person. <laughs> in her own way, Sharon Brilsky is deciding to opt out of the kind of messaging that is so prevalent nowadays. And based on some of what I've seen and heard on social media, I don't blame her. In New Orleans, I'm Ton Trung for WWL Radio.